If you have a Bible this morning, turn with me uh, to the book of Acts, and let's go to chapter 2, verses 14 uh, through 28. We've been looking at this mini-series in Acts chapter 1 and now in Acts chapter 2, the beginning of the church. And so this morning we want to look at uh, part 5. Last week in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 uh, through 13, the Holy Spirit fell upon the 120 in the upper room. Uh, the proof of the Holy Spirit's arrival, as promised by Jesus, uh, he, the Holy Spirit of promise, arrived in the form of cloven tongues of fire upon each and every one of the 120 in the upper room. And here's another proof text. They began to speak according to verse 11 of the wonderful works of God in 17 or 18 different uh, dialects. Those that were outside of the upper room could hear and could understand. Amazing how the Spirit of God was speaking. Not only could they hear, but they understood perfectly their own language. And listen to this translation in their own language or the lengua franca. Uh, from the Latin, which means language clearly heard and understood by those being addressed. And then we studied last week, they were all amazed, and then they were perplexed. How could this be that these from the upper room, the 120, were Galileans? They were a simple people. They were fishermen. They were farmers. They were unschooled. They were unlearned people. And then we concluded... The best response from the religious sect last week, those that were in the upper room, they're drunk with wine. Now Peter gives his first sermon at Pentecost. Another proof text, as we get into the message this morning, here's Peter, this Galilean. Remember, his speech gave him away uh, when that uh, girl, that young lady, heard him speaking. When they were trying Jesus, when he was in this uh, makeshift trial, and she says, you're that Galilean. Your speech gives you away, and so it gives you uh, an insight. When the Galileans spoke, you knew. And here you are in Jerusalem. Here you are with a religious sect. And these 120 are speaking in these unknown languages. But there's a 17 or 18 different dialects, and they hear. Verse 11 says, they heard the wonderful works of God, and they were convicted. Next week, we'll see uh, that over 3,000 come to saving grace. But I want you to see Peter here, filled with the Spirit. Peter could not have done this without the power of God's Spirit that had come upon him. You have to understand something. Uh, from the time of Genesis up to the New Testament, the Holy Spirit would fall on certain individuals, usually the prophets and maybe a priest and, and some of the judges, etc. It fell upon men and women at certain times. But now we come in uh, to a new perspective. We come into the beginning uh, of the church age which the church age, we are a part of, and it's still today. We cannot function as they could not function without the power of God's Holy Spirit. 
I need God's spirit. You need God's spirit. It's not just for the leadership. It's just not for the pastors. But we need the power of God's spirit. Husbands, in order to be a, a, a good husband, a good father, a good leader in your home, you need the Holy Spirit. Moms, dad goes off to work, and, you know, a lot of the times the moms have the training of the children, the discipline of the children. And again, you cannot do it without the power of God's spirit. Even though Mary and I are attached or disattached from our, our children, you know, two of them in Albuquerque, two of them in, in California, I still keep tabs with them. And Mary still keeps tabs with them. And when we speak with them on the phone, uh, we tell them we love them, and then we try to pray with them. There are sometimes they're on the run and such, but yeah, Dad, pray for us, and we got to go. And we will pray for them. And so the Holy Spirit leads us and guides us uh, into all truth. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. I cannot learn, I cannot receive without the Spirit of God working in and through the scriptures in and through that teacher, that Bible study, time of prayer. There's so much that engulfs the Holy Spirit in my life. And so now Peter gets up and he begins this sermon. Look at verse 14 now. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known. Let it be known to you and heed my words. The tongues had stopped. Peter steps up to the plate and he shares plainly. I believe it was in Hebrew. But I want you to see he raised his voice. That shows me the boldness. Peter's not intimidated by the crowd. Peter's not intimidated, listen, by the religious sect that would have been there. Peter is not intimidated anymore. He's not fearful anymore. He's not denying Christ. In fact, he's bringing Christ forth. And so Peter, I like to use this. He's a simple fisherman. He's the guy with a size 12 a sandal in his mouth. He steps up to the plate. You men of Judea, listen up. Look at verse 15. For these, and remember what we shared last week? These are not drunk with wine, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. We know that the third hour was 9 o'clock in the morning. Wine was not drunk in the early morning. We're speaking about those that were there, listening. We mentioned last week, pious men and then non-pious Jews. Uh, these would not eat or drink anything, especially wine at 9 o'clock in the morning, because it was a celebration of Pentecost. There in the temple was sacred time. Remember we shared that uh, Passover, uh, Tabernacles, and Pentecost, those were three essential feast days that you had to attend as a Jew, especially the males. 20 years and over. And so you would come. How dare you come intoxicated? It was just unheard of. They came to worship the Lord. It's interesting. Later, Paul's going to write in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 concerning a communion. They had combined the communion with the agape feast. And a lot of times they would partake of the agape feast before the communion, and some of the Corinthians 
were coming intoxicated. And Paul nails that. And I speak from experience. Before I came to Christ back in Southern California, I remember many, many of Christmas Eves. We would go to midnight mass. My aunt would come out. I can still see her. I can, I can still hear her. She would have a pan, and she would have a spoon, and she would clang them. And she would say, okay, those of you going to church at midnight mass, those of you receiving communion, you have to fast for an hour. That was the rules and the regulation. You have to stop drinking, and you have to stop eating. Let me tell you something. One hour does not sober you up. And we would go to midnight mass, reeking of intoxication. And we would receive the Eucharist. And so Peter is letting them know. Now, look at verse 16. But this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And Peter's going to pervade him, quote, Job. Joel is just a powerful teaching when you come to it. Again, let me emphasize this. Peter's a simple fisherman. Peter's a Galilean. Peter is unschooled unlearned, but yet he knew the parchments. He knew the Old Testament. And not only is he going to draw from Joel, but he's going to draw from the Psalms also. Again, not only does Peter step up to the plate, but the Holy Spirit has engulfed this man. He's not the same. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And so Peter continues his personal experience in the presence of all those outside the upper room. Peter responds the best way he knows. And this, pointing to the word of God, you can't go wrong. Always revert back to the word of God when possible. And generally, it is always possible. It is good to give your opinion. There's nothing wrong with that. It is good to give your thought on this, on that. There's nothing wrong with that. But we need to go to the Word of God. Why? Because you can't go wrong with God's Word. Listen, your thoughts, your opinions, again, etc., I'm sure are all well-intended, but you can't go wrong with God's Word. Listen to this text. We often use this, but we don't say it. Isaiah 55, verse 11, Isaiah pins the words... Uh, of the Lord, he writes, my word will not return to me void. My word will not return uh, empty. Why? Because his word is true. I want you to do a small study when you get home tonight, this afternoon, Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is getting ready uh, to begin his public ministry. He, he takes some time for 40 days of prayer and 40 days of fasting. He goes out into the wilderness. Satan comes. He knows that Jesus is tired. He knows that Jesus is famished. He knows that he's hungry. He's parched. He wants something to drink. And he tests him. He tempts him. And there's called the three temptations of Jesus. Now, he's being Jesus, son of God, savior of the world. He could have turned, you know, those stones right there into a loaf of bread. He could have drawn easily water from the rock. But in his role of the God-man, in his humanity, he was parched. In his humanity, he was hungry. 
And so in the three temptations, I want you to see the Son of God, Savior of the world. Jesus responded to Satan. It is written, it is written, it is written. Now go back and study that. And the three quotations that Jesus gave are out of the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. But the devil will not give up. And so here's Peter. And quickly, the Spirit of God has him uh, to quote Joel chapter 2. And so we're going to see this now. And it's going to begin here in verse 17. Joel chapter 2, uh, verses 28 through 32. Now remember, we shared this many times. Joel is writing, listen, about 800 years before Christ. And so those that knew the Old Testament uh, parchments, those that knew the Old Testament scrolls, uh, the Pentateuch, uh, the Torah, they understood the scriptures concerning the prophecy. There would have been those waiting for this prophecy. How did Peter know but by the power of God's Spirit? Uh, listen as he quotes from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And it shall come to pass in the last days, very important there, uh, saith God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Listen, I'm getting a lot older, and I don't dream that much. My wife and I will talk about it. She said, uh, have, did you have any dreams? Did you, did you dream anything last night? And you know, sometimes that hamburger's chasing you. <laughs> that burrito's trying to track you down. But I can honestly say, I don't dream very often. But when I do, listen, I really check on it because sometimes God is speaking to me uh, through the dream. Sometimes God is speaking to you uh, through the dream. Now, as we look at verse 17, the last days, I want you to see this this morning. The last days is reference uh, to the times of Christ then and now, 2,000 years later. Uh, I like what John MacArthur said years ago on a teaching he did uh, on the last days because uh, people always asked him, and I get the same quotation, uh, they see the signs of the times all around us, and the question will come up. Are we in the last days? Are we in the last days? And so I like what John MacArthur said, and he would respond, we have been in the last days since the time of Jesus up till now, so 2,000 years. And I like that. I like that. Notice that the promise of Jesus, when Pentecost, that's what they're talking about in Joel, when Pentecost shall fully come, the Spirit of God will fall. Listen to the New Living Translation, verse 17. God says, I will pour out my Spirit upon all people, not sectional or, or not certain people in the Old Testament, but all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men uh, will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. This has happened for the last 2,000 years. Or since Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the 120 there in Jerusalem in the upper room until today. 
until today. One commentary said this about uh, verse 17. The idea of the last days is that uh, they are the times of the Messiah. I like that. Encompassing both his humble coming and his return to glory. Because Jesus has already come in all humility, uh, they were aware that his return in glory would be at any time. It's been 2,000 years, church. It's been 2,000 years. And I can honestly tell you, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I believe Jesus is going to return. And before he returns, there has to be the rapture of the church. And then after the rapture of the church, there has to be a seven years of tribulation. And at the conclusion of the seven years of tribulation, Jesus will come in glory. The Bible says he'll stand upon the mount and he will split it in two. And then he begins to set up the kingdom age. For 1,000 years. And there are those that say you're crazy. Look at the scriptures. Look at the prophecies. If prophecies have already been fulfilled of his first advent, how much more in his second advent? And we're talking over 300 prophecies in the first advent. And people still don't want to believe. And so Peter is speaking and preaching here with boldness. Look at verse 18 now. And on my men servant, and on my maid servant, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I love the wording here. Just to clarify, God is no respecter of persons. There is no favoritism in God's church. In God's kingdom, he poured out his spirit on all his servants. Listen, men and women. I believe on those who asked. Those who asked. You see, uh, we've studied this the last couple of weeks now. There's three prepositions concerning the work of the Holy Spirit in my life and in your life. Number one, para. He comes alongside to convict me of sin. Once the conviction takes toll and I respond to Christ, Lord, save me. The second preposition is en. He comes into my life and he tabernacles within me. But then we've been speaking about the third preposition that we find in the book of Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. It's called the EPI experience, EPI. He comes upon you from the top of your head uh, to the bottom of your soles to your feet. He saturates you. He goes through you. And the picture of that is found in Psalm 133, when the anointing was given uh, to Aaron as a high priest. The oil was poured out, listen to this, in a ram's horn and poured over his head completely, and it just ran. We need the unction of the Holy Spirit. We need that third preposition, the experience. And it's not going to come unless you ask. I want you to study Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. And I'm going to just give you the gist of it. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find it. Knock and the door will be open to you. Knock and the door will be open to you. We have the Holy Spirit when we're born again 
from above, according to John chapter 3. We need this third aspect. And so para has been part of my life. In experience has been part of my life if I've come to Christ. But I need this boldness. I need this P experience. I need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so here's Peter now. He speaks with boldness. He stands up from all those in Jerusalem. Notice that the word servant here. The Holy Spirit will be poured out to the men's servant and to the maid servants. The word servant used to describe the woman or the man is the word doulos in the Greek, and it means a bond slave by choice. A bond slave by choice. We, we don't like the word or the term slave because what it means. But in all reality, listen to me, we were slaves to our sin nature. We were slaves to sexuality. We were slaves to alcohol. We were slaves to uh, drugs. Some were slaves to, to lying and cheating and stealing. Whatever is our sin nature, that's what we're a slave to. And so now I come to Christ, you come to Christ, and I truly desire by choice to be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And notice that you're going to have the boldness to prophesy. This was very important in the times of Jesus. Very important as the New Testament church is being established. Listen to the word prophecy in the Greek. To foretell events, to foretell divine events, to speak under inspiration of God, to exercise the prophetic office of God. Again, the Old Testament has already been written at this time. But the New Testament was being written. It was being completed. There's still a total of 27 books in the Old Testament. And so the men wrote, women wrote, and the Holy Spirit gave them the words. Very important to see that. All Scripture, remember we shared, is God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. Many times the prophets were writing down the, uh, the text, and little did they know what they were writing, but inspired by the Holy Spirit. I look at verse 19. I will show wonders in heaven. He's still quoting from Joel. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath. And listen to this. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And so Peter speaks of the prophetic word given by Joel 800 years prior to Pentecost. He speaks about the miracle signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Some had already taken place. But what about 70 AD? It still hadn't happened. The destruction by Rome and Jerusalem. And we know that in 70 AD, Jerusalem was practically leveled, especially the temple. And the Jews were scattered to the four corners of the earth. It's called the Great Diaspora. And so here's a beautiful description. I want you to think of war. I want you to see, uh, think of the smoke and such and uh, the things that would take place. But what about futuristic? 
remember, they're in, we're speaking about the last days. Blood, fire, and vapor of smoke. It happened in 70 AD, but I want you to understand. Daniel's 70 weeks. It's called the seven years of tribulation. If you're taking notes, Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. It still has not come. It still has not come. And so what a beautiful description of what's going to take place then in 70 AD and what's going to take place in the last days. In the last days of the last days. In the seven years of tribulation. Uh, look at verse 20. He takes it a little further. Uh, the sun will be uh, turned to, into darkness. And the moon into blood. Before the coming of the great and awesome. And you need to mark this down. Day of the Lord. The awesome day of the Lord. Barnes commentary says. Images used here. With reference uh, to the sun and the moon are used concerning the last days. They occur, and if you're taking notes, Matthew chapter 24, Mark chapter 13, Second uh, Peter chapter 3, and in Revelation, watch this, Revelation chapter 6, Revelation chapter 8, and Revelation chapter 16. The description here. And Barnes says, the shining of the sun is an emblem of prosperity. The withdrawing of the sun can speak of an eclipse. Or the setting of the sun is an emblem of calamity. And it is often thus seen in Scripture to say that the sun is darkened or turned into darkness is an image of calamity and especially, especially of the calamity of war. When the smoke of the burning cities rises to heaven and obscurance of his light. This is Barnes Notes. And lately, those of you that might read prophecy, those of you that might be intrigued with prophecy, all of a sudden there's this talk, this chatter concerning the blood moons. Very popular. Very popular. Now, Let's get back to that word, that phrase, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord in Scripture is the return of Jesus Christ in his second coming at the end. Listen, you need to study Amos chapter 5. The book of Amos chapter 5 is probably the earliest occurrence in Scripture of the phrase, the day of the Lord. According to Amos, that day would be a time of great darkness for any in rebellion against God, whether Jew or Gentile. I believe Amos is making reference to the seven years of tribulation. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, speaks of Jacob's trouble. Who's Jacob? Remember Jacob? His name was changed to Israel. Interesting. What is the purpose of the seven years of tribulation? But to woo the nation of Israel back to God. They need to understand that Jesus is their Messiah. At the same time, the Gentiles are there. We're the grafted in branch according to Romans chapter 11. Let's go back to our text now. Look at verse 21. 
And it shall come to pass that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. When I came to this passage, this is Peter, the guy that denied the Lord three times. Peter, on the third time, the rooster's going to crow. It'll never happen. And it did. But here's Peter speaking with boldness, speaking with authority, speaking with the power of God's Holy Spirit. He goes evangelistic now. And that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Listen, look at the people that are outside of the upper room. Could Peter have come out on a balcony area and they were listening, intently listening? These are not drunk with wine, but filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter is in this new boldness, filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter, through the Holy Spirit, sees the evangelistic purpose. This outpouring of the Holy Spirit means that God is offering salvation in a way previously unknown. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It will be many years until the gospel is offered to the Gentiles. It will happen in Acts chapter 10 at Cornelius' house. Yet Peter's sermon, his text, announces the gospel invitation by saying, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You see, up to this point, the Bible says that Abraham believed God by faith. And so the prophets believed God by faith. There were those in Israel that believed God by faith. But now as Messiah has come in, we must believe in Christ. We must believe in the cross. This is the, uh, the scenario that God has set up so beautifully. This is why John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus coming into the Jordan Valley, Jesus seeking to be baptized by him, and John recognizes how the Holy Spirit revealed it to John. John was one of those that the Spirit of God fell upon him. And he points and he says, behold, now the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. Jesus is the complete sacrifice. Paul picks this up later. In Romans chapter 10, verse 13, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Paul and Peter both expressing a salvation. Salvation is why Jesus died on the cross, to give us life. Listen, life eternal. Listen to this proverb, okay? I love the Proverbs. It's called the Book of Wisdom. Interesting that Solomon wrote over 3,000 Proverbs, and we only have 31. People say, well, where's the rest of them? Why do you care about the rest of them? God gave us 31. God gave us 31. Uh, listen to Proverbs 18. Verse 10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. The righteous run to it and are saved. You cannot run to the cross and be saved unless the Holy Spirit leads you. That's where para comes in. The Holy Spirit comes alongside. The Holy Spirit convicts me. The Holy Spirit pricks my heart. 
The Holy Spirit tells me I need to be saved. Bob, you need to be saved. I know from experience because it took three years. I ran from God. I ran from God. I was convinced I was going to heaven because of my religious upbringing. I was convinced I was going to heaven because I did all the sacraments that I needed to do. I was convinced uh, I was going to go to heaven because even though we got married in Las Vegas, uh, two weeks later, we got married by the church. And so I did what was supposed to be done. And I was promised, listen, as long as I wore a scapular, I was promised. Even if I died in my sin, I would go to purgatory. Can you imagine later when I found out there's no place called purgatory? I think there's one in Pennsylvania. But I don't think that's the one they were speaking of. Listen to verse 22 now. And again, Peter, filled with the Spirit. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God uh, to you by miracles, signs, and wonders, which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves also know. The word attested, in the Greek, he was approved by God. Uh, these are his credentials, the miracle signs and wonders. Imagine those that knew of Jesus for a three and a half year span. I mean, the miracle signs and wonders that he did, uh, we estimate uh, in the four Gospels, we see at least 35 of his miracles uh, in the scripture. 35 that we know of. There were many more, but th this is the ones that we needed. These are the ones that were shown to us. I mean, if you saw a blind man and you knew this blind man and he didn't have any eyeballs in the sockets and God restored them and gave him his sight, shouldn't that bring you to Christ? When Jesus fed 5,000 and then 4,000 and then picked up leftovers, shouldn't that have brought you to the cross? When Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth after being uh, in the grave for four days, his sister, which, Lord, by now he stinketh. Isn't that enough for us? Ten lepers are healed. You don't think that spread uh, through Jerusalem? Hey, did you hear about the lepers? Yeah, but only one came back. Where's the other nine? They went to the clubs again. They forgot. Peter is speaking with boldness here. Uh, look at verse 23. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. The him is Christ. You have taken by lawless hands and have crucified him and put him to death. God knew this. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, uh, God right there already makes a provision for the fall of man, Adam and Eve. Even there in Genesis 3, 15, God was preparing his son to come and die on the cross. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Imagine the foreknowledge, God knew he would have to relinquish his own son. And he does that for you and I. Uh, look at verse 24. 
whom God raised up, speaking of Jesus, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he, he should be held by it, the Father raised his son from the death, removed him from the pain of death. Jesus took back his life. Death could not keep him in the grave. If you've never studied 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's the doctrine of the resurrection. And Paul says uh, to the Corinthians, and he speaks about the core of Christianity. You see, Jesus is the only one that has ever died and then rose again from the dead. Nobody else. Nobody else. So the core of Christianity is Jesus' resurrection. If there is no resurrection, Paul writes, then we are all men and women most pitied. The translation of the word pitied, you miserable Christian. You come to church on Sunday, you pray, you listen to the preacher, you give of your tithes and your offerings and your gifts, you help out in the church, you gather gifts for uh, the poor, you gather food for the poor. If Christ did not rise again from the dead, you are all most miserable. In 1 Corinthians 15, listen, verse 55, what Paul writes. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, which is hell, where is your victory? Jesus rose again from the dead, as was prophesied in the scriptures. Now Peter goes back to David. In verse 25, for David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, and that I may not be shaken. He's quoting Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. The whole psalm is called Messiah's victory. Uh, listen, here's Peter again. He's already quoted Joel. He's already quoted what's taking place there in Jerusalem now. It's the prophecy of Joel, and now he takes it to the Psalms. Peter knew his scriptures because Peter's moved by the Holy Spirit now. And so here in verse 25, King David said that, he said this about the Messiah. He's speaking about Jesus. David didn't know, but he pinned I see that the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. The Bible says he sits at the right hand of majesty on high. Here's Peter quoting. Look at verse 26. Now, therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. My heart is joyful. And my tongue shouts his praises. My whole being rests in his hope. F.B. Myers, in his commentary of Psalms in verse 26, the glory of the tongue to worship God. To worship God. When you get to the Psalms, if you have a study Bible, 
they'll tell you many times what the psalm is about. I love those psalms that say, these are ascents. These were sung as they were going up to Jerusalem. You never went down to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was on a hill. And the pilgrims would go. And they would sing praises unto the Lord. They would generally go up with a group of four, five, ten, twelve. Because of the, the, the thieves and the robbers. And so there was protection with uh, numbers. But as they were going up to Jerusalem, they would be singing these psalms. They would be singing the praises to God. Adoration unto the Lord. Look at verse 27 to 4. You will not leave my soul in Hades. You will not leave my soul in hell. Who's David speaking of? He's speaking about the Messiah. Nor will you allow your Holy One to seek corruption. Who's the Holy One? It's not David. He's writing of the Messiah. I like this. We know that Jesus went into Sheol. He went into Hades. He went into hell. According to Luke chapter 16. He went in there to set the captives free. He went into the other side, which was Abraham's bosom. Go back and study it. And he proclaimed the gospel. And so David writes, you will not leave my soul in hell. Or allow your Holy One, which is Jesus, to rot in the grave. How did Peter know? But by the power of God's Spirit. It's the same thing with you when you're sitting, sitting here on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or any time we proclaim the gospel and, and you hear the Word of God and it seems to just minister to you. Or when you're reading the Scriptures on your own, when you're going through your devotionals, God is speaking to you. God is speaking to me. Listen, husbands, years ago, when I would hear the preacher, years ago, when I would read something, and it was getting my heart, and I go, whoa, this is for Mary. <laughs> and God said, wait a minute, Bob. Uh, I'll talk to Mary in my time. This is for you. No, 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 no. This has to be for Mary. Uh, that's how we are. That's our nature. We're creeps, men. Look at the conclusion here. Verse 28. You have made known to me the way of life. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. And so King David here, in this portion of the psalm, there's more of the psalm. You need to go back and read it. But this is what Paul or Peter was ascribing you have shown me the way of life. You have shown me the way of life. And you will fill me with the joy of your presence. David knew that Messiah would come. Maybe he didn't fully understand it, but he knew that Messiah would come. The Holy Spirit had ministered to David. If you go back uh, to the book of Job, Job is considered the oldest book. Chronological order, we have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But Job is considered the oldest book. And as you study through Job, when you pick up towards the latter chapters, he believed 
and the resurrection. How did Job know that? But by the power of God's Holy Spirit. Peter knew this could only be done through the promise of God's Holy Spirit to come and to lead and guide and direct. The same with us this morning. This message touches the heart of those in Jerusalem. We will study next week. Over 3,000 are added to the church. And listen to this. Over 3,000 are baptized. And you say, that's a lot of people. That's right. There was 12 men. Divide the 3,000. Each one would baptize 250. It's not impossible. It's possible. It's a lot of work. As long as you got them under. Baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Great Commission. The church begins by the power of God's Holy Spirit. This morning, if you have not come to saving grace, that's what you need to do. And if you have come to saving grace, you need to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit if you have not. And so we're going to pray. We're going to end with a conclusion here uh, this morning. And if you haven't come to saving grace, you need to give that to the Lord. And if you've not received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, in Matthew chapter 7, ask, seek, and knock. You don't have to even raise your hands. In fact, you don't even have to stand up if you don't want to. You don't even need to come up here. But it's by faith. Lord, fill me with the Holy Spirit. Lord, pour out your Spirit upon me, Lord. Lord, I want to be, you know, guys, a good husband. Ladies, you want to be a good wife. Single people, you want to serve the Lord with diligence. At work, Lord, I need to be a good boss, a good supervisor, a good owner, or I need to be a good employee. I can't do it without the power of God's Spirit. I can't. Neither can you. Let's all stand. We'll end with a word of prayer. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for your precious word. Your word which will not come back void. And so, Lord, if there's anybody here that's never received Christ, uh, today is a day of their salvation. And Lord, I just, I believe everybody needs to pray this. And that is, if you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and we all do, then we need to be open. We need to open our hearts and our minds and our very souls. Lord, baptize me in the power of your Spirit. Lord, I need this boldness. Lord, I need this enabling. Lord, I need this unction of the Holy Spirit and the evidence will be his agape love. And so, Father, baptize each and every one uh, here this morning. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Lord, bless the offerings this morning. As you've given to us, uh, we give back a portion. And it's in Christ's name we pray. And we all agree by saying, amen. Amen.